Hello, and welcome to Ideas Having Sex with Chris Kaufman. I'm Chris Kaufman, and each show I bring to you an interesting and provocative scholar to discuss topics in social science, philosophy, history, politics, and more. If you enjoy what I do, please take a minute to subscribe to the show and to give us a rating and review wherever you listen. Hey, everybody, and welcome to Ideas Having Sex. I'm Chris Kaufman, and today I'm joined by my returning guest, economist David Friedman. David is the author of The Machinery of Freedom, Guide to a Radical Capitalism, which is one of the founding texts of modern anarcho-capitalism. David, thank you for joining me. I'm glad to be here. Actually, you're joining me since this is happening in my living room. Thank you for letting me join you. My dining room, sorry. My first uh, in-person interview of the show, so... Hopefully, there's no horrific technical glitches. Unusually for this, I'm not I'm not having this episode center completely around a book. But if it is centering around a book, I wanted to talk to you about anarchism and anarcho-capitalism. So Machinery of Freedom, which you wrote in 73? I think I wrote it in 71. And I think it was published in 72, but I won't swear to that. Okay, well, anyway, about 50 years ago. Somewhere there. So if we are talking about a book, it's that one, but we don't have to be bound by that at all. So first of all, what what, what exactly, without defending it or getting uh, too deep into a description, what exactly is anarcho-capitalism? It's support for a system in which there is no government and the useful functions of government are provided privately in a general private property and trade kind of framework. That is, that, that the problem that all societies face is the coordination problem. Uh, how, given that we have very interdependent societies, do you make sure that there is enough coal mined to make the amount of steel that's needed to make the cars that people want to buy and multiply that a million fold through the whole system? And the only way that seems to work very well on a large scale for solving that problem is a market, a system of private property and trade. A lot of people who consider themselves anarchists don't believe in the market, but as far as I can tell, they don't have a good alternative. So the anarcho-capitalist view is that you have something like our present economic structure in the sense of a world where people own stuff and own themselves. And if you want somebody to work for you, you have to make a deal with him. He's willing to accept and all the rest of that stuff. But that that is expanded to include the things that are now done by government. And how did you come to be an anarchist personally? That's interesting. I think my position initially, which means at about age 15 or so, 14, 15, something like that. That's when you first started thinking about these kinds well, of things? I probably or... started thinking about it earlier, but by the time I had things reasonably well worked out, was pretty much a classical liberal position that I thought that the market was the right way to do almost everything, but that in order to do it, you needed a framework of law and law enforcement that had to be produced outside of the market. And I I felt as though I could sort of prove that as a theorem, even though I hadn't really done so. It seemed sort of obvious. And I then read a science fiction novel, which did to me a persuasive job of portraying a society in which the legal system was endogenous, uh, in which 
the framework of law and law enforcement was coming out of the society itself rather than by a government. Uh, it was an in a fictional world. It was the moon is a harsh mistress. It was a basically a society existing on the moon at a point when the moon was a prison colony, but there were a bunch of people who were no longer prisoners uh, and there was no authority enforcing rules on them. As far as I could tell, it was a consistent story. It seemed to me he had described a system that would work could plausibly work, and a theorem is destroyed by a single counterexample. So if it was true that one could have a believable system of that sort, then it couldn't be true that the framework always had to be produced from the outside, and that started me thinking about in something more like the world I lived in, what such a framework would look. Now, you've mentioned my first book, but it's also relevant, my most recent book, which was a few years back, which is called Legal Systems Very Different from Ours, because one of my conclusions from the work that went into that book was that in writing my first book, I had been reinventing the wheel. That is to say that there had in fact been real world societies, not on the moon, in which uh, the legal structure was being produced endogenously from the interaction of the people without any government. They were in much simpler societies than ours. Uh, at least one of them uh, actually looks a little bit like what I invented, namely the traditional Somali system, others less so. I don't know whether Heinlein, who wrote the novel, was aware of those or not. He may have been. Uh, he may have been modeling on, on, on some of that. Uh, but in any case, I thought that was very interesting. So I tried to work out how you could imagine such a system working in our society. And I came up with what I still think is a plausible structure in which you have a society where there are private firms that sell the service of protecting your rights and settling your disputes. There will obviously be the potential for conflict between people who are customers of different firms, but it's in the interest of the private firms to have arrangements to settle those conflicts peacefully uh, in a way that's generally satisfactory to their customers. So each pair of firms that might have customers interact agree in advance on a private court that they will abide by. That agreement is enforced by the fact that they're repeat players and each firm knows that if it reneges on the agreement, uh, when its side loses, then the other one won't accept it. When its side loses, and then they don't have a a way of providing a peaceful settlement for their customers. Uh, so that was the basic framework. It seemed to me plausible and I got interested in it and I sketched out some of the economics of that system and more later and concluded that not only would it be a system without a government, it would be a system more likely to produce libertarian law than a political system was because like other market systems, it would tend to produce economically efficient results, to results that, loosely speaking, maximize the summed benefit to the people involved. And since I, like most libertarians, believe that liberty is generally economically efficient, that it is rarely, it is rarely the case that you gain more by violating my rights than I lose. Consequently, a legal system that protects individual rights uh, will tend to, roughly speaking, maximize the welfare of the people under it. Uh, therefore, the 
market for law in the system that I had described ought to generate reasonably efficient law and therefore reasonably libertarian law. And I think in a sense, that's, that's what I think of in a way as my main contribution to the anarcho-capitalist literature, as it were, because as far as I can tell, other people in that tradition more or less assumed that philosophers would figure out what was right and then all the judges would enforce it. And that does not strike me as a very plausible way of running a society. Uh, I observe that even among libertarians, there's actually quite a lot of disagreement about what rights people have. Uh, intellectual property would be an obvious example where some libertarians think it's the most fundamental source of property and others think it's obviously a violation of rights. So I don't think the idea that we will have a society where, where all of the courts agree on libertarian law because libertarian law is right is very plausible. And what I had set up was a society where it would be in the rational self-interest of judges to make essentially libertarian law because that would be what their customers wanted to buy and their customers wanted to buy it because that was what their customers were selling to their customers, namely the individual individuals who paid for having their rights protected. So as I say, I think that's that's probably the point where I don't I don't know of anyone else in that tradition who made that line of that line of argument, and, and I think it's an important one. I'm actually, I've got a series of blog posts that I'll probably be putting out at some point in the next month, uh, which touch uh, on that question. Well, are you selling yourself short a little bit? I mean, in addition to to that contribution, you're not the first person to have proposed the idea of something like market anarchism, but you're definitely in the founding wave of the modern American tradition. I mean, is there yes. prior to yourself and Rothbard and the Tannehills, is there is there anyone else, someone who was alive at the time I, who was writing about this? I don't think so. I don't know enough about the late 19th, early 20th century individualist anarchists. Uh, my impression is that you don't get a sort of serious economic analysis of it, or at least if you get it, it's wrong because a bunch of those people had somewhat bizarre economic ideas that uh, you, you get have the idea that if you had a competitive banking system, interest rates would be zero or close to zero, which seems to have been shared by a number of the uh, sort of Warren Tucker group of people. I think that was less true of the of the British kind of anarchists, like people like Auburn Herbert. And yeah, I don't uh, know enough about them. There's apparently a, a ton of, of journals of quasi, they didn't call themselves anarchists, or they vehemently denied that they were anarchists, like Ayn Rand vehemently denied that she was a libertarian. But they were writing more in that vein and less in the vein of those kinds of uh, those kinds of economic beliefs. Yeah, I, I, I just don't don't know those people. Sure. There's there's a as you probably know, a French writer earlier than that. Molinari? Yeah, who, who people, some people think is sort of the earliest anarcho-capitalist, but he doesn't seem to have a very sophisticated analysis either. But but no, I mean, I think I made lots of useful arguments, but but if I ask what, where is there an idea that you don't find in the other people who were writing at the time, I think that's the important one. And I think that I mean, I, I have lots of disagreements with Murray Rothbard on lots of things, but I think the only important one is that I believe he imagined that the that the legal code would be basically being produced by libertarian philosophers, 
whereas I see it coming out of the market. Do you think that the tendency of common law is to produce more libertarian law when it's when it's not responding to legislation? Well, that that would that would be an implication of Posner's thesis. Posner claims that the common law tends to be economically efficient. And I don't think he's produced a good argument for why you would expect it to be. And the empirical argument is dubious. I, I spend one of the things I do in my book, Law's Order, is to look at cases where common law is economically efficient and where it isn't economically efficient, and to argue that there are quite a lot of cases where once you know where the law is, you can always figure out an argument to show it's efficient. Uh, There's one case where you have two parts of the law where the economic issue is the same in both of them. They have the opposite rule And Posner separately claims both of them to be economically efficient. I don't think it occurred to him that they Mm. were really the same same problem. Uh, I discussed that in Law's Order. So I'm not at all sure that the common law is economically, or or, or liberally. I mean, I suppose common law tends to be pretty close to libertarian intuitions, but I wouldn't say that there's a, a reason why it has to be, as it were. I wouldn't think so either. Just like there's, you acknowledge that in in some circumstances, an uh, anarcho-capitalist legal code might not be libertarian, but it would probably tend to be more libertarian. Yeah. The I guess maybe the clearest case where common law is at least inconsistent with my moral intuitions is that if I tortiously kill you, I owe no damages because your claim dies with you. If I tortiously injure you, I owe damages to you. And under statutory changes in the U.S. context, I might owe damages for killing you to other people who are worse off by your death, you say to your wife or to your employer, maybe. But I don't owe any damages under U.S. law for the loss of, of the value of your life to you. Do you know the origin of that common law rule? No, but but I think the ba- I, I think I think what it's coming from is the idea that you have to have a claimant, sure, and the only claimant isn't around anymore. Anyway, so so that would be one one example, but I think there are probably probably other examples. I mean, common law is pretty good, but one of the points that I try to make in explaining why I find the what I see at least as Rothbard's view unconvincing is that designing a legal code is a much more complicated problem than non-lawyers think it is. I think anybody, any intelligent person who has gone through law school, say, should realize that in deciding what the law is, there aren't simple arguments which give you clear answers to all the questions, that there are a whole lot of cases where it's, well, this reason for that and that reason for that and so forth. And and therefore, I'd much rather have that kind of problem solved by a market than by a philosopher. No, that makes sense. Yeah, I I think especially when you're talking about conflicts that are not clean, when you're not designing the conflict in an armchair, Mm -hmm. and you're in the real world, and a lot of times, you know, some of the conflicts might be over who actually is the rightful claimant of something because you don't know. Mm -hmm. In terms of libertarianism, how do you think your views have changed most since you wrote Machinery? The clearest thing that where my view has changed, but it's not really an important thing, is that I think is economics. And that is, I think I was more sympathetic to the idea of an agoric economy then than I am now. 
the idea of an economy where you have no employees, where everybody in effect is a subcontractor, feels right from a sort of libertarian intuition kind of view. And I sort of like interacting in that context. And when I self-publish my books, for example, Amazon is not an employee of me. I'm not an employee of theirs and so forth. On the other hand, there's a literature which ultimately goes back to Coase's classic article on the theory of the firm, which I think convincingly shows that there are good reasons why firms exist. That that if you think of it sort of as a libertarian, I assume you're familiar with the calculation controversy, the argument. I couldn't explain it in good detail, but yes, I am. But you can... You can uh, it's basically an argument between people like Mises and socialist economists such as Abba Lerner uh, on whether you could have a socialist economy that worked. And if you think about it, if you really accept the Mises, et cetera, view, you not only shouldn't be able to have a socialist economy that worked, you shouldn't be able to have a firm that works. Because the argument is that you can't figure out top-down how to do an allocation problem. You need to do it in the decentralized market form. And that's clearly too strong. Uh, Isn't isn't the view that you couldn't have a centrally planned economy or even a firm without any external market from which to judge the inputs? But if you think about the argument, even with an external market within the firm, you've got a bunch of things that the time of of, of one of your employees it's not like he's working, you know, 14 hours for you and 12 hours for somebody else. And you can say, what's the marginal cost of taking it, diverting an hour from, from the one job to the other? That within, within the firm, you're, I mean, after all, in that sense, the socialist system has maybe not exactly prices, but they can say, do we win a war? Uh, you know, do we, the socialist system can trade with other countries. So there are prices in that sense. Uh, but nonetheless, both the firm and the socialist system have to do a sort of top-down centralized planning thing. And the point Coach made is that it's not impossible, it's just costly, it just doesn't work very well, but there are costs to dealing with things on the market as well. Uh, that if I rely for a critical input in what I'm producing on you or producing that, and uh, you decide to go on vacation, I'm not controlling you. Turns out that uh, nobody else is, will produce, is producing that particular input at the moment, so I got to shut down for two weeks. Uh, and there's, there's an interesting article by somebody else, but coming ultimately from Coase's ideas about the inside contracting system in the US in the 19th century, where you did have things where what's now done by one firm was being done by multiple firms and what the reasons are that it eventually more or less died died out. So anyway, that's really, it's not really political philosophy, it's just economics, but it seems to me that while I may find the vision of agoric economy a pretty vision, there are good reasons why you actually have a mix. I think the way I put it at some point in one of my books was that the market economy is a market beach made up of socialist grains of sand. Yes, that sounds right. Anyway, but but the more important thing, I think, is that I've become less convinced of the power of moral arguments uh, over time in the sense that there are 
problems with the libertarian moral argument. Uh, the obvious big one is ownership of unproduced resources such as land, uh, but you can think of others. And it seems to me that the consequentialist argument is a stronger argument. That is to say that most people, people disagree in detail on their values, but most people think it's a good thing for people to be happy. It's a bad thing for people to starve to death and stuff like that. And I think most of the political disagreement ultimately comes down not to differing values, but to differing beliefs about the consequences of doing various things that, that I think there's almost nobody who is in favor of raising the minimum wage, who also believes that the result of raising the minimum wage is that many unskilled workers will be unemployed. I asked Brian Kaplan about this, that there there are economists who favor minimum wage laws, and surely they understand. And I, I asked him, behind closed doors, why do you think economists who favor these kinds of things do, despite understanding the arguments? And I don't know, the answer he gave was, the, the support is relatively lukewarm. It's mostly about symbolism. They probably wouldn't support if, if the, the wages were too but, high. But, but, but there, there are two complications to that. The first is that there are circumstances in which a minimum wage law would have good effects. They just aren't the circumstances that it, apply to our economy. Sure, sure. And that's an argument which was which I only first came across in the famous pro-minimum, sort of pro-minimum wage piece that was controversial a while ago, but it turns out that Stigler had made it much earlier, that if you, if you have an economy which is where the employee, the employers are monopsonists, where you typically you have an employer who is the only employer for the, that set of workers, then the employer will pay below the marginal value product for the same reason that a monopolist sells at above marginal cost. Uh, and in that context, the minimum wage can actually do good. Now, it's not a very- It'll raise the wages without putting people out of work because it's still in the benefit indeed, of the Indeed, putting more people into work because the employer in that case is deliberately holding down employment in order to hold down wages, just like a monopolist holds down output in order to hold up prices. Yes. And so, so that, that's a, it's a neat technical point. Uh, and I only wish that Jim Buchanan- were around so that I could point it out to him because he was the one who who, who said that the proposition that all econ he said all economists agree that increasing the minimum wage will create unemployment uh, and that is not an empirical statement that's a definition of economist and I still remember his saying that <laughs> when we were colleagues and and I think he's he, in a sense, wrong in that a good economist could say, well, if you're observing this kind of an economy, and it won't be true. But the the more serious reason is that one might believe that the unemployment effect is small. Uh, that's an empirical question. Certainly, I'm not competent to have an opinion on it. So you might therefore believe that a minimum wage law will make the society a little bit poorer, but make low low paid workers noticeably better off. And that you might consider that a desirable outcome. So and that probably depends on like the, the specific utility effects of having a slightly higher job versus being unemployed. That seems wildly implausible to me that, that the being unemployed seems like a pretty discontinuous 
jump down in utility. But if, but, but, but if what's happening is that a uh, hundred people get unemployed and 10,000 people get a much higher wage, then sure. Uh, anyway, point is it's, it's possible. You don't. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So, but I don't know. I, 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 I'm not sure I know any economists who are in favor of a higher minimum wage and in particular Krugman, uh, I think is holding that position for purely political reasons since he's on record from back when he was actually an economist rather than a public intellectual, professional public intellectual as taking the same position on minimum wages as the rest of us do. But there might be somebody who, who, who did. It's not, it's not, not impossible. Hey everyone, this is Chris Kaufman and I just wanted to take a break to thank you all from the bottom of my heart for listening to these episodes and giving me the opportunity to speak with people I admire and read amazing books every week, every other week, whatever. If you are interested in helping this little engine that could of a show grow, uh, please just recommend it to a friend. Recommend it to a friend. Maybe give it a give it a five star rating on one of those places you listen to it at. But really, if you just recommend it to someone, that that goes a long way um, for a small show like this. So thank you again. Thank you for listening. Keep listening, and back to the show. As far as you becoming less confident in the power of moral arguments, what do you think about the contrast that, you know, say in a previous generation of libertarian scholars, you know, maybe the two most influential are your father and Ayn Rand and are famous for making exactly these different kinds of arguments, moralizing strident arguments for Ayn Rand and more consequentialist arguments for your father and Milton Friedman, for those who don't know, and both of them are famous for being quite influential. I mean, does this show that there's just different market niches for which strategies are going to be effective? Yeah, but I, I'm i opposed to bad arguments. Okay, and as far so it's as not about it being effective. It's you think it's effective for the wrong reasons. In, yeah, in the, in the case of Rand, was, she, she was brilliant, courageous, uh, arrogant, but in my view, at least she was wrong. That is to say, not necessarily wrong about her conclusions, but sure. she claimed that she could, in effect, prove what the right moral views were. And I, I spend a chapter in the third edition of Machinery of Freedom uh, trying to debunk her purported... And years arguing online, doing the same. Yes, much, yes, <laughs> correct. Uh, back in the old Usenet days, yes. long, long ago, I spent a good deal of time on humanity's philosophy objectivism, arguing with people. And the best of the people I was arguing with was, was Jimbo Wales, who went on to start Wikipedia. Who is an interesting guy. I don't know if he still talks about being an objectivist or if he still considers himself one. I, nor do I. I don't know that either. But, but, but he was the only person I can remember arguing with who was making a serious attempt to understand my position and to find problems with it. And he didn't get it quite right, but he was pretty close in terms of, of problems. So I appreciated that. But anyway, that, that was a lot of fun. I think we talked about that last time you were, you were on the show because I spent a lot of time reading those arguments and I'll, I'll probably bug you every every time we talk to dig them up at some point and include them in a uh, some kind of compilation work. Huh. Yeah, Is I don't know. In principle, Usenet is still there. And I... Subsumed under Google Groups or something, or it was at one point. I don't yes, know if that's and, a thing anymore. And it, it might be worth... I have a feeling that at some point I did find a link for my arguments about Rothbard's economic history of economics stuff, which was a, a different long thread that I had. 
Is this where you're you're arguing that he's uh, made dishonest arguments about Adam Smith's position on on wool tariffs or something? On a bunch of things. Yeah. But what's really striking is the contrast between his treatment of Smith and his I'm trying to remember the name, but but there's one of the French Cantillon or not Cantillon Turgot uh, Turgot that he accuses Smith of not being a libertarian because Smith. Rothbard doesn't get it right, but but in fact, Smith felt that some government subsidy to schooling might be desirable, might not be desirable. Turgot writes a letter to the King of France when Turgot is a French minister proposing the nationalization of the educational system. <laughs> Rothbard regards Turgot as the good libertarian and Smith as the as the not one, and of course never mentions Turgot's support for for having the government not only take over the whole educational system, but write the textbooks as well. It's quite Do you find evidence that he was aware of that letter? Or is he it just, is, just it studiously is, it ignoring is, it when it was it, pointed out? It is out? in a book that Rothbard wrote the introduction to. Well, there you go. I heard Brian Kaplan say that he, he was a brilliant guy, but when he got the answer he wanted, he was fanatical about keeping it regardless of counter-arguments. Yeah, uh, that, that's a fair, fair statement. But anyway... But my, my, my point really is just that there are a couple of interesting threads on Usenet from, from those days, and it would be sort of neat if uh, somebody could set up a set of links that would let one easily browse those threads. So if you I have agree. nothing else to do with your plenty of spare time. <laughs> uh, part of what I did when I set up my uh, Substack. Uh, was to mine both my blog. Well, it's more complicated than that. Uh, some years ago, I decided that I didn't have any new ideas that were worth writing a book about, but I had a whole lot of old ideas. So I went through all of my blog posts, sorting them into groups of posts on the same subject, which could be turned into chapters. And I then put up on my web page a whole bunch of chapter drafts with the idea that at some point I would get organized enough to assemble them into a book or two. And I then mined those, which were really largely my blog post ideas at secondhand rewritten into things for the early parts of my Substack, which was how I was able to run a Substack post every day for a while at the beginning of it which is obviously impossible. <laughs> and and I'm still mining them some. That is, I've one of the nice things about the Substack is that I haven't only done that, that I've ended up writing a fair number of things that were new. Yeah. Are you still planning on doing the book, the collection? Probably at some point. Though I, though in that case, I may, I, I may take the next generation, that is take the rewritten versions of Substack posts as the basis for, sure. the, for the chapters. Yeah, no, it would presumably... One sizable chunk of it would be on climate issues, because that's one thing I've posted about quite a lot. Mm -hmm. And another chunk would probably be on libertarianism. And, and it, it may end up more than one book, but I've, I've got categories at the moment. And the categories that I mostly finished turning blog posts into chapters on are libertarianism, economics, climate, and a couple of smaller ones. There's one on sort of marriage and related things. There's one on religion, which is fairly short, but I thought I had some interesting things to say there. So I, I've just I've just been taking apart, uh, reassembling uh, a, a group of the uh, of the chapters for stuff having to do with libertarianism, and that's what I'll probably be doing in the 
putting them out in the in the next month or so when I finish. Basically, I want to put up the one that I'm working on for, for today, uh, which is on my argument that there is no right of national self-determination, that there's no moral argument for it and a very dubious consequentialist argument for it. The dubious consequentialist argument, is: would that be something like people who are like you and close to you are more likely to rule you justly and fairly yeah, than that's, distant people? Might might be true. I don't know if that's true or not, but my point is that if you actually look at the evidence. Exactly, yeah. It, it that sounds plausible at first blush, but yeah, it, it's it, not it obvious it that the, It doesn't look very good. Yeah. Now, it, it's hard to be sure because, you know, it, it may well be that there are other reasons why some very bloody civil wars happened sure. uh, after independence. But anyway, I would like to be able to do one on the implication of my views for the present Israeli-Palestinian conflict, and that's going to be a much a much harder problem. I don't know if I can actually do a satisfactory version of that or not. That, in a sense, the simple and simple libertarian answer is the Israelis should compensate those Palestinians whose land was seized in '48, and everybody should be free to migrate to Israel if they want, including Palestinians. And the problem with that, of course, is that some noticeable fraction of the Palestinians want to kill all of the uh, Jews and are therefore very dangerous neighbors. And then the interesting part there is that if you accept that argument, which I'm inclined to, to say that if the odds that somebody, if, if you let him into, close to your land, will kill you are high enough, you're then entitled to keep him away. But then that argument also implies that in principle, the Palestinians in the 1920s were entitled to keep the Zionists away sure. because after all, some of the Zionists. Now, I, I think it probably, as far as I can tell from reading stuff on that, probably most of the immigrants until fairly late were not actually planning to set up a Jewish state which would uh, have only Jews in it. I think that's right. Uh, I think there were some of the extreme Zionists who did have that view. And if all they wanted to do was to have a bunch of immigrants and maybe when they got them, my guess is that many of them were thinking in the context of the British protectorate anyway. And we're just saying what we want to do is to have a bunch of Jews in British Palestine mm -hmm. and have it a place where Jews can go to and where they have their own community and so forth. And I don't think that the... Palestinians had any legitimate right to object to that, but insofar as they inter as they uh, imagined what actually ended up happening, uh, if they had sort of perfect prophecy, then they would have an argument for keeping the the the, the people from immigrating, uh, just as the Israelis today have. So maybe that that maybe will end up up if I try to write that that Substack, but. Does that counterfactual, though? I mean, how much does it depend on having perfect prophesying, yeah, prophecy uh, abilities? Because yeah. I mean, you could... Uh, but it's more than that, because you could argue on the other side that if the Palestinians hadn't engaged in violence against the Jews, uh, this never would have happened. That, are you talking about the current controversy? or, or No, I'm going... Um, you have Palestinian violence against the Jews in the 20s. There's a riot in 29 where several hundred people are killed. And the question is if you, whether in an alternate history in which the Palestinians behaved morally, as it were, whether you would have ever gotten, I mean, after all, Israel at present has, has Arab inhabitants, quite a lot of them, Sure, uh, the ones who didn't leave. 
And the thing is, I don't really believe that anybody has a right to vote because I don't believe in governments. So in that sense, the idea of they wanted to have a majority in order to set up their government to make rules we don't like, well, that's equally true if you had a government that made rules other people didn't like. That, that that's Anyway, it's... I have to think it through more carefully. It'll make an interesting post, though. Yeah. I think, you know, Israel and Palestine presents an example that begs to be used for libertarians who are not absolutists, but favor things like open borders. Most of them do. Some libertarians curiously somehow circuitously argue that open borders is not the libertarian position, but it's possible that there are, I mean, even Brian Kaplan, who is famous for his open borders position, I think has given examples. Yeah. And this the example he usually gives is if there's a reasonable chance that like open borders might lead to a civil war, it's probably a good reason to to be a little bit careful about it. Yes. Anyway, it's it is a very unpleasant situation at the moment. And you know, one of the points that I make in the in the one that I'm probably going to put up today is that one of the if you take seriously the attitude which implies a right of self-determination, namely that groups have rights, that groups are people, as it were, which is really the underlying, I think, mistaken intuition in that. Then one of the implications is that groups can also be guilty. And at that point, you get the, I think, mistaken moral intuition, which is driving both the Hamas raiders, that their view was, yes, these particular Jews were killing didn't do anything to us. But they are part of a group that that drove us out of our country, out of our land, essentially. And the intuition of lots of people as a result of the raid, which is the... That Palestinians are... The Gazans are murderers. Yes. And therefore deserve to have bad things happen to them. And that's very different from the position I would hold, which is particular Gazans are murderers. And it's true that killing those people may kill some innocents in the process because, you know, you've got the human shield problem. But it isn't that the the Gazans who are not part of Hamas and did not engage in this or in planning for this themselves deserve to die. It's only that they might unfortunately get killed in the process of going after people who do deserve to die. And those are very different attitudes and have different implications. Are you familiar with, and if so, what do you think of Brian Kaplan's Simple Case for Pacifism? I don't think I've read it. Uh, it's a short blog post, and it's and it's not uh, like Lefebvian, Tolstoy, and absolute pacifism. It's more pacifism as a very strong principled objection to war in pretty much every case. And he starts with the the forced organ donation hypothetical. Is it right to, if you can, you, you're familiar with it, but for the audience who's not, if you're a doctor and you have five people who each need a different organ... And one person who's got five healthy organs, might it be moral to kill that one person, distribute his five organs and save five people? Most people say no, it's not a knockdown argument, but uh, that seems intuitively implausible that that would be a moral thing to do to most people. So he takes that as a jumping off point that killing one person is not justified even if you're saving five people and that future events are very hard to determine. Experts notoriously have very bad predictive judgment about how wars and political events are going to turn out, and wars always involve the deliberate or reckless endangerment of innocent lives. So if you can't guarantee or more or less guarantee at least a five-to-one ratio of innocent saved to killed, war is not justified, and modern wars essentially never meet that threshold. And therefore... 
if another country invades you, you should surrender. I don't know if that's exactly the conclusion, but that, I mean, that is one problem. But if it's not, I mean, if you are going to kill an innocent person, it's still, you still are left with the question, what's the justification for recklessly endangering or killing an innocent person? Or if someone was invading your house right now, and the only thing you could do to stop them was to firebomb that would kill some of your neighbors, are you justified in doing that? It's not that it's a easy. Well, my solution to this problem is that my weapon for home defense is a sword, not a firebomb. Well, and sitting up on top of that. Part of the solution might be that modern state methods of war are morally indefensible because they typically and involve. Therefore, but 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 the the problem always arises if a country that does not hold these views invades a country whose inhabitants hold these views. Do they surrender? Possibly. And it's possible that it might it might be better off. I but mean, they, they might be. But then the, then the obvious next step of the argument is that the widespread acceptance of this principle will make invasion very profitable because there you won't have to worry about your anybody shooting back, at which point the states uh, that support this kind of position will get eliminated by states that don't. Isn't that only true if war is more profitable than than trade or other things? No, because it be because it isn't going to be war. Conquest of pacifists is cheap. Yeah, I mean this this it's a real problem. But does it answer the moral question of are you morally justified? I should, I, I should argue this with Brian. You should because <laughs> I haven't even read his. his uh, I think I think the no I think there are prudential arguments for a non-interventionist foreign policy. Sure, but the but it becomes harder to make the argument if it includes the idea that if anybody invades you, you have to surrender. Uh, we'll, we'll leave it there, but I, I definitely believe it's a tricky problem, but I'm largely convinced by his argument. I got a list of common libertarian controversies that have different views on different libertarian sides. I was wondering if you could briefly maybe say something about what you think the controversy is and what your position is and why. So libertarians have widely different views on abortion, immigration, war, moral foundations, strategy, and what cultural and social attitudes are warranted or supportive of libertarianism. So I just listed a few. We don't have to talk about all of them. Do any of those jump out at you as something you want to respond to? Well, I mean, in general, I'm in favor of free immigration uh, for obvious reasons. And with the usual qualification that if you have free immigration, to a welfare state, you've got to have restrictions on the degree to which the immigrants get welfare. And that probably also means restrictions on on how easily they get to vote, because otherwise they'll vote to give themselves welfare uh, if there are enough of them. Let's see. Other than that, abortion, I think that is a hard problem. What the problem is ultimately coming from is that we are using binary moral categories for continuous situations. Person and non-person. That that it seems to me pretty clearly that there are it somebody who wants to murder his three-year-old should be prevented from doing so. It seems to me quite implausible that somebody who wants to use a form of contraception that prevents the fertilized ovum from implanting should be free to do so. In between those, you have what's really a continuous, not a discrete uh, change, and yet your moral intuitions are that there's got to be a rule one way or the other. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I don't. I, I think that's a problem, which which I don't see how you're going to unless somebody comes up with a much clearer moral view than than, than I've seen. 
I don't see how you're going to get an answer. And sort of my own view is that probably abortion is not something you ought to make illegal, but is something one should have serious reservations about doing. But I can certainly understand somebody on either side of those, of that position. You've pointed out before that even if it does seem like an open and shut case to you, you know, normally it's someone who is in favor of legal abortion arguing against someone who's not in favor of it. But another interesting question is someone who is in favor of abortion arguing with someone who's also in favor of infanticide yes, being legal. That's, that, I think that's useful as a way of getting the people who are in favor of abortion to realize that it's a harder problem than they want to believe. Sure. Because there is not a fundamental moral difference between a baby half an hour before it's born and half an hour afterwards. Sure. And historically, infanticide has been common um, for a lot of the same reasons that abortion has been common. Yes. I think in a situation in the U.S. with regard to abortion, if I understand it, was that early term abortion in the 19th century wasn't thought of as abortion, that it was preventing quickening and that the sort of serious opposition to abortion is, I think, fairly late, maybe in early 20th century uh, development. On the other hand, one of the things that a lot of American supporters of abortion don't realize is that most of Europe, the rules are more restrictive than the rules in the U.S., not less. That is that in most of Europe, uh, late-term abortions are illegal, uh, except in, under special circumstances, early term abortions are legal. I think that's a correct statement. Yeah, I, I looked into that at one point, and it seemed like the U.S. as a country has, well, especially now, 50 states and 50 different ways of legislating abortion, and they span being simultaneously much stricter and much more lenient than your than almost any European countries. Yeah. But anyway, so let's see, abortion and immigration. Moral foundations. Ah, yeah, I think they're very weak. How does your moral foundation of libertarianism, which you you don't stress too much, but do talk about sometimes, how do you think it differs from Michael Humer's vision, which are both similar? No, our our position is very, I I think the only different disagreement I know that I have with Humer is that he is more confident that our position is right than that I am. (laughs) That is to say, we're both intuitionists. In my view, the serious challenge to our position is one which holds that all moral beliefs are an illusion. That is uh, something we've been tricked into by our genes or our culture or whatever. And that, it seems to me, is, is consistent with the available evidence that one can explain what Mike and I want to take as evidence of moral reality can be explained as, as the product of a common cause. Uh, along those lines. And I reject that basically because I, I, I cannot in fact believe it, but I don't think that I've got an adequate argument to show that it's false. And Mike thinks he does. And we've discussed that a little bit. And I've, you probably haven't read enough of his stuff to have spotted if there are detailed disagreements, but basically we have the same view of of where one gets one's moral information from, so to speak, and I think have roughly speaking similar moral conclusions. Yeah, I think that's right. What about strategy? Uh, well, what, what you would regard as an effective strategy from getting from here to something closer to a libertarian world? Actually, that's a Substack post that I've started and haven't. I've gotten sort of stalled on or evaded, but in order to do other things. 
the starting point, I think, is recognizing that the answer is different for different people, that there's a temptation in any movement. I think one of the reasons why you tend to have a lot of internal conflict in ideological movements is the idea that the movement has a certain pool of resources, as it were. And if you have the wrong idea of what we should be doing, you're wasting resources that should be given going to my right idea. And that's a mistake that libertarians should be particularly unlikely to make. Should be. Because the resources in question are all resources that belong to individual libertarians. And if I am somebody who is not very good at political camp at organizing political campaigns and doesn't enjoy it, and you tell me that's the only way of bringing liberty, then the answer will be that I'm not going to do anything. Whereas if you, I think, correctly recognize that there are a whole bunch of different things, each of which might move the needle a little bit in the right direction, you can then say which of those things is something that I would be good at and that I would enjoy doing. So that one of the approaches, in my view, is the approach that I've been following for a very long time, which is to try to put ideas in circulation and promote them that will result in more people believing what I think are true things in a libertarian direction. So that to take the simplest example, if most people view a tariff as a costly way in which some people, some Americans benefit at the expense of other Americans, it will be politically more expensive to promote tariffs than if most people view a tariff as a way in which Americans benefit at the expense of foreign countries that want to under, undercut our prices, so to speak. So by doing things that help people have a correct view of the economics of foreign trade, uh, one shoves a needle a tiny bit in the direction of free trade. And I think that's going to be true pretty broadly. And it is true, in a sense, in the range from my father's arguments to my arguments. That is to say, it's true of spreading ideas about why generally free, freer markets within our system are good. But it's also true of showing plausible ways that you could have a society entirely consistent with libertarian principles, namely an anarchist one, because if people take ideas seriously, if you say taxation is theft and somebody says, well, that's interesting. So you're really in favor of having a no taxation. How are you planning to play for the police? And you say, um, uh, well, uh, I'm, 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 uh, uh, I'm a classical liberal and governments are entitled to, yeah, well, then you don't really believe that taxation is theft, do you? So it seems to me that in that sense, creating even relatively extreme ideas on the libertarian side and spreading them is one way of helping to move the world to more liberty, whether or not we're ever going to get anarchy. So that's one thing. But there are other things that if if you're an entrepreneur who can find out a way of making money producing something that the government is currently doing badly, you then reduce the pressure so that I would say that the idea of abolishing the post office is a whole lot more plausible now that we've got the UPS and FedEx than it would have been 50 years ago. And email. Yes. Similarly, if you can do things that make homeschooling much easier and work better, that will reduce the pressure for uh, having public schools and spending money on them. If an entrepreneur could figure out a way of making inexpensive private schools, private schools that cost 
you know, a fifth what the public schools cost and did a better job. At a fifth what the public schools cost, people might be willing to throw away the free money, as it were, and pay for it. And you would then have less pressure for, for public schools. So I think there are lots of ways in which a sufficiently clever entrepreneur might change the world in a libertarian direction. On that note, do you know James Tooley's work at all? The Beautiful Tree? Oh, yes, sure. Because he's written a lot about that in the third world. Yes. And creating institutions that substitute for government is one thing. Spreading ideas, both moderate and extreme libertarian ideas is one thing. Uh, in terms of politics, I don't think that electing LP candidates in order to pass laws is a very plausible tactic, but trying to elect in a case, first running LP candidates, because that's a time when people are talking about political issues, you can therefore use that as a way of spreading your ideas, makes a lot of sense. And if you could occasionally elect one of them, that might be a further way of getting attention to your ideas. What do you think about the Free State Project? Oh, that's a neat idea. Uh, I think it's a good idea. Plausible way to do what might normally be quite unlikely, which is actually elect, you know, not yes. large numbers. But, but the, the interesting question is, to what extent is that going to result in making New Hampshire a much more libertarian state? I think it's having at least some effect in that direction already. And if it does that and it's successful, will that then be a way of persuading other people that they should do it. So that seems like the hope. Yes. No, I had not th actually thought of that, but I should include the Free State Project in my in my list. I like it. I, I go to Porkfest uh, every year, more or less, and I occasionally window shop Southern New Hampshire on Zillow, although I don't think I'm ever going to leave because <laughs> I've got a, a, a yard full of fruit trees that I planted and I'd like to it's be It's a great to place. See. Have you been to, to Porkfest? No, I never have. Uh, one day. <laughs> It, it's fun. I like it. It's. I watch your debate with Gene Epstein, though. Yeah, but I, I contrast Porkfest to the, I guess it's Freedom Fest in Vegas. Yeah. And I haven't been to Freedom Fest in recent years, so I may be being unfair. But my impression was, that although there were some interesting people, interesting things happening, there were too many people there who were trying to sell you a gold mine or the equivalent. And Porkfest, what they're trying to sell you is some Indian food that one of them made. My very favorite thing at Porkfest, I think it was year before last, was an entrepreneur who was making blowguns. They were PVC tubing, but very, very ornamental with, you know, colored tape and such. The darts were made with 3D printing of several different kinds. And the entrepreneur was, I think, 10 years old. And it was reasonably clear that it was, you know, he had support from his parents, but that it was his project, not theirs. He was, he was, he was back last year too, and he still had those things. He didn't, he didn't have anything new that struck me as especially interesting. But that kind of feel, uh, it's quite moving. Yes. Uh, so, so I no, I like I like Porkfest. What about differences in the kinds of social and cultural attitudes? I mean. Huh. Yeah. that are consistent with or supportive of liberty. Uh, I mean, probably I think a pretty wide range. That is to say, it seems to me that people who like the idea of a sort of a hippie commune, that it's probably an attractive way to live for some people. It is entirely consistent with liberty, as are people who, you know, want a very individualist uh, lifestyle. I guess the most interesting cultural thing that I've observed recently is sort of the rationalist movement 
and it tends to be pretty sympathetic libertarian views. I was just commenting recently on Discord uh, correspondence with the author of some rationalist fanfic, a very good one, uh, that's a very good author, that a, a particular world, basically one of the uh, after life after death worlds in her fictional world, sounded as though I could have written it. Uh, now that particular culture has features that I don't much agree with that uh, I think polyamory is probably not a sensible idea for most people, although it may work for a few people. But it's it's a functional culture. The you know they've got these various group houses and so forth. So I guess I don't I don't really feel as though there is you know one true libertarian lifestyle, as it were. I think that's fair to say. I, I mean, I, my my impression. You can correct me if I'm wrong, but that culturally there are left and right libertarians, and you've never struck me as especially right wing or left wing on those senses. Do you think there are any particularly interesting or insightful or both? Uh, libertarians who do who are clearly more on the left or on the right culturally and and not just personally but you know advocating it and speaking on behalf of it i don't know if you would count uh, scott alexander as a libertarian i'm not sure right. he would i mean I, I i i take him at his word when he describes himself as kind of a moderate left-ish libertarian yeah the the but i certainly think highly of him and i think his cultural sympathies are, are, are left-wing. Some of mine are, some of mine aren't. Uh, I'm just thinking of who who would be a clear example on the other side. And the answer is no one's coming to mind at the moment. Uh, Data Secrets Locks has a bunch of people who pretty clearly are right-wingers, some of whom are libertarian, some of whom aren't. I don't know if Peter Thiel counts as a libertarian, maybe. All I know is roughly what he said about himself, but I don't I don't yes. know in any detail what his views are. It seems to me like a, a right-leaning libertarian from what he says about himself, but that's all I know. Yeah. But I guess I don't really think very much in those in terms of looking for people who are sure. symbols. What do you think is the most common misconception people have about anarcho-capitalism? Well, one one sort of misleading thing is people say, well, the law will be up to the highest bidder. And they're not thinking about the fact that in the same sense, in exactly the same sense, what cars are produced is up to the highest bidder. But that does not mean that the car companies spend all of their resources making luxury cars for billionaires because there aren't very many billionaires. And similarly, uh, I would expect that in an agro-capitalist society, if you are rich, you probably get a better quality of rights enforcement than if you're poor because they're willing to spend more more money making sure that if anybody steals from you, they catch him. But I don't think it makes much sense to imagine that that means that rich people can kill anybody they like to, uh, because the cost, even in dollars of being killed, is greater than the benefit of killing somebody in almost all cases. Anyway, so, so beyond that, I guess... It's not really a misconception, but many people presumably uh, imagine a single law code that's written by libertarians over all of it. And that mm-hmm. certainly is the view of some non-capitalists, just not mine. Some people seem to think it means no law at all, that it sort of is relying on people being moral, which I'm certainly not willing to do. 
And I don't think most anarcho-capitalists assume that. Yeah, I don't think that's a weakness of libertarians, especially. I mean, if, if anything, the opposite. The idea is to assume crooked timber. Are you following Prospera at all? A little. Because your, your son, Patry, is somewhat involved in that project? I'm not sure if he's actually involved in Prosper. He was certainly involved early on and then at one point gave up on it and then it turned out it was working. And he's involved in an investment fund for people investing in projects in new cities. But he certainly is in contact with the Prosper people, but I'm not sure he has any official involvement. But it's, it's a neat idea. It might even work. I was actually thinking of possibly visiting there next month uh, there's a, I was, I'm told they're having a couple of day thing, event on life extension, and I'm very much in favor of extending my life. And my son, Patris, thinks that one of their people actually has a medical, a somewhat experimental medical process that may significantly slow aging, which is a subject of interest to me. Sure. Uh, so I may end up going there. I've never been there, but, I, but I'm, I'm thinking about about that. I almost went myself and I still am planning at some point. The other place, of course, that I may want to visit, depending on what happens in the next week or two, is Argentina. I haven't followed. What's the what's the oh, background there? They have a two-round presidential election system. And the candidate who got the largest number of votes in the first round described himself as an anarcho-capitalist. Really? A uh, libertarian by the name of Millet. He got like 35 or 40 percent of a, you know, basically, well, more than three party, <laughs> three person thing. And he's currently favored to win the election, which is happening shortly. And you can claim some amount of credit for that. I mean, the, the <laughs> that I don't know, not directly, but in but indirectly, the, right. the ideas of anarcho capitalism has been right. popularized as it happened. Uh, oh, probably less than a year ago, some point in the last year, I think. I was at a conference organized by, I think, Liberty Fund, where one of the other participants was an Argentinian economist who thought I should visit Argentina. And at this point, if Malay wins, uh, I would be delighted to visit Argentina and see what it's like. It might be a little risky because uh, South American countries' politics sometimes gets violent, but it would certainly be interesting. Uh, but I, I I don't know the the candidate at all. That is, I only know secondhand stuff about him. I'll have to look into that a little bit. I wouldn't normally care about following even American politics. That's really interesting. What do you regard right? You know, if you were if you were to look forward in the next you know several decades as the most promising prospect for some level of relatively radical experimentation I, with anarcho-capitalism. But I think I think you you've touched on two of the answers, namely the New City Movement on the one hand and the Free State Project. Now, I don't think either of them is going to give you a radical experimentation with anarcho-capitalism, but they're both going to give you things, substantial steps in the right direction if we're lucky. And the third, which has been happening quietly, is online, where to a considerable extent you already have anarcho-capitalism in the sense that, for example, what's really enforcing, in what's enforcing contracts on eBay is almost entirely reputational, not legal enforcement. So I think a lot of the online infrastructure, as it were, 
is has become is becoming a world where states don't have very much effect on how people interact with each other and there are other mechanisms for doing what we think of as the work of states are you worried at all about the kinds of things that were revealed in like the Twitter files, do those make you more or less pessimistic about the the prospect of the online world being somewhat free from state inf- influence? Well, of course, the state will influence, just like everybody will influence it. The question is, does the state have the power to stop people from doing things? And mostly, I think it doesn't. You know, it certainly will make, make attempts to, and it will sometimes succeed. But it seems to me that that's a world where the sort of the, the logic of the technology is on our side. Sure. Uh, that, as I put it a long time ago, you can't get a bullet through a T1 line. Um, so I, I mentioned earlier, uh, you know, yourself, Murray Rothbard, Morris and Linda Tannehill were maybe the some of the first prominent people to articulate this modern version, modern vision of anarcho-capitalism. Uh, what younger current scholars working on this do you think are doing uh, especially interesting work right now? Well, I like humor, who you've mentioned already. Other than that, you know, I'm sure there are some good people who I don't know, but I can't think of anybody else who I've interacted with who struck me as, you know, having interesting uh, new ideas. Well, Michael Humor is a great recommendation. Um, any any particular, um, whether new or not, any particular books you would recommend as a good um, supplement oh, or complement to machinery? Sure. The other Scott, Seeing Like a State. Oh, yes. Oh, now I'm blanking on his name. But Seeing Like a State, Against the Grain. Um, I know who you're talking about. He's an anthropologist. Yeah, I, haven't more read, on the I, have, left. I haven't read Against the Grain. But Seeing Like a State and there's another book. They're both good. He doesn't think himself as a libertarian. In fact, I would say he goes to some effort in one of the in one of the books to make it clear he's not one of those icky libertarians there's a yeah footnote where i think where he is in fact agreeing with james scott james scott we were a footnote where he is agreeing with i think hayek on something and then makes a point of the fact that <laughs> that doesn't mean that he approves of all of these silly people uh and i've met him i like him uh we we, we had a more or less debate a few years ago uh he might be the, the best example of somebody who I actually learned things from that are relevant to, to the anarchist position. And, and part of it is that in one of his books, I think it's not seeing like a state, but as I read them long enough ago, so I'm not clearly distinguishing what's in which, but one of the books he's discussing in Asia, the situation where you had states and stateless areas adjacent and at various points, the states expanded. At various points, they contracted for different reasons and so forth. And one of the interesting points he makes is that it is easier for a state to conquer you if your food is rice or wheat than if your food is root vegetables. Because rice and wheat, you harvest it and you've got uh, storage facilities full of the stuff and an enemy army can come in and grab it. Root vegetables are in the ground until you eat them. So if a invader wants to seize your food supply, he's got to actually go, you know, dig up all of whatever you you have. I wonder if that has any relevance for the for I- Irish uh, English colonial history. Well, I don't know about that, but but it struck me not that that particular example is useful, but that the idea of saying under what circumstance, what what are the things that make it more expensive to rule people or less expensive to rule people? or to conquer people or, or to get rid of conquests and such was a very interesting and perceptive way of thinking about yeah. it. Yeah. He also gives 
I think, some good arguments about the ways in which attempts to push people into doing things the way that other people had decided were the scientific way of doing it tended to be mistakes. And, you know, some of that I knew and some of that I didn't. Yeah, actually, I'm, I'm aware of his work, but I haven't read any of his books. And it's a it's a blank spot that I've yes, been well, meaning to say, Seeing like a state and there's one other the against the grain. And he's got one on on which is something like two tears for anarchy that I didn't think was very good. And I, I'm not sure if I've read all of it, but seeing like a state is one of the two books that I liked. And I'm just not blocking at the moment on the name of the other one. Uh, but he's he's neat. And, and, and I liked him. Other than that. Well, actually, there's an interesting book, which I've actually got a chapter, a draft chapter on on my website, and I'm not sure if I did a Substack post on it or not, called The Organizational Revolution, which is, it's relevant. It's not really about libertarianism at all, but it's about the ways in which societies changed as a result of technological changes, where the the central problem is really the principal agent problem. The, the problem which we typically, our standard solution to this problem in our society is you hire people. That you hire somebody, you watch what he's doing, and you fire him if he doesn't do what you've hired him to do. And the argument this person is making is that that was not the standard way of organizing things 400 years ago or 500 years ago. And the reason it was not was that doing it requires a world both where you can monitor people fairly easily and where it's fairly easy to see whether result, whose fault results are. And that in a world where uh, transportation is much more irregular, so when if it, it might be that the reason the person didn't show up at his job was that the road was out. Uh, a world where you don't have very readily available time information and so it's hard to coordinate and so forth and so on, a bunch of things that you end up with two other mechanisms becoming more important. One of them being patronage. One of them being that you give the job to somebody you have other reasons to trust, maybe because he's a relative or the family or somebody else who you gave jobs to 20 years ago and so forth. And you can monitor in the sense that if after 10 years, it's clear he's not doing a good job, you can not only get rid of him, but stop doing nice things for him and tell other people not to do nice things for him, but you don't. So that's one, one approach to is patronage. And the other approach is making the job a property right and setting it up in such a way that the income from doing the job is to a significantly degree uh, dependent on, on how well you do it. So that, for example, uh, the British Navy with a system where if you sunk an enemy warship or captured an enemy merchant ship, the captain got, gets a third of the value of it and the uh, officers get a third and the crew get a third, if I remember correctly, with some division like that. But it was basically, a, and not actually in the Navy, but in the Army, a uh, position as an officer was a property right that you could sell. And if its, it's system is set up well, uh, the value of that will be higher 
because the, it, it's it's a officer's position in a particular regiment. So if you make the regiment do very well, so it's likely to get loot and get rewards and things of that sort, uh, your, your position as an officer is worth more and you can sell it for more. And on the other hand, if you are really good at what you're doing, you correctly believe that being a higher officer will make you money and therefore you're willing to buy one. So he's basically describing a system in which you're using property rights instead of employment. So it's a very interesting book. And uh, the organizational revolution. Yeah. But anyway, that would be an example of something I learned from. I learned something, learned some interesting ideas from. But I don't really think of it as liber- as a matter of what libertarians do you learn things from. It's of what people do you learn things relevant to libertarianism. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. From. No, I think that's that's very reasonable. In fact, it's probably more trustworthy. And, and and it's also true that in the course of doing the work that led me to my most recent book, the Legal Systems Very Different book, I was encountering work by people like the British anthropologist who was basically the expert on the Somali system, which I learned interesting things from. And that was the uh, that was the first episode that David was on. By the way, if anyone wants to check out that episode, we talked about legal systems very different from our own. I one of the earlier episodes. I forget the number. Yes, the so I learned useful stuff from that, and you know I learned useful stuff in lots of weird ways. Uh, uh, you mentioned your collection that you might be putting together. Are there any other um, projects you're working on right now? Not really. Not in your. There's like projects that have nothing to do with libertarianism and sure. writing, of course. But you've been more active on on your Substack and blogging, so that's the the the. I, well, I'm not blogging anymore. I'm only doing the Substack. Uh, and to some extent, my interaction on data secret locks, or maybe even on Astro Codex 10, uh, sometimes produces things that I then turn into other, other writing. Mostly not, but, but I, I concluded a long time ago that arguments are a good way of getting educated because when you're having an argument with somebody and you want to find the evidence that supports your position, and you want to check whether the evidence he offers, that makes it fun. And uh, so you end up doing what's essentially research. So that, to take a very simple example, the stuff I was doing uh, on the question of whether uh, national self-determination has good consequences ended up my looking up, up lots of interesting things. It ended up with it occurring to me that the U.S. and Canada were an obvious case. That was not originally, I, I was thinking, well, I, I know about these African cases where lots of violence happened, but then let me keep going. And well, hmm, it occurs to me that uh, Indonesia was a big country, which used to be a colony and stopped being a colony. Did they kill anybody? Well, yes, it turns out they killed about half a million to a million people at one point in, after wow. independence. So in that sense, I just find that being involved in what's essentially an argument is a good incentive uh, for learning stuff. Especially if you enjoy arguments. And especially if you have the access to the internet. Yes. It was much harder in the old days. And quality interlocutors, not all of them are, but that's the one of the benefits always has been of of Scott Alexander's uh, blog and the various commenters are, are bright, engaging, yes. high quality people to talk to. Yes. the I was thinking of having some reference on my, uh, on my Substacks post to Slate Star Codex of Blessed Memory. <laughs> uh, you, so um, 
your Substack. Is there any other places that people can find you if they want to keep up with your work? As I mentioned, my web page my web page has links to most of what I do. It has links to the full text of multiple books. It has a link to the Substack and a link to the blog, and that's probably where you can. You know, it's not organized very well. Uh, I have when I, when I do an interview online, I generally add it to the page of links, uh, which is my talks and interviews or some category like that. Well, that reminds me. I wanted to ask what what has been. What do you think has been your favorite or most interesting debate you've done that's that is available online in the last five or ten years? Well, it's a much much older one, but the debate with George Smith on that's a great one. Oh. No, I thought it was really neat. In fact, I was just yesterday, I came across a web, uh, a YouTube of a panel I was on in 1983. Uh, and that was fun just to listen to, 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 to see what I was saying there and mostly the same views I have now. I <laughs> haven't changed very much over time. I looked an awful lot younger. Uh, and... But no, I think the George Smith debate was very good. George unfortunately died recently. He did. I was trying to get in touch with him so that I could get his cooperation in webbing the text of the debate. And I eventually got somebody else who agreed with him, with his position more or less to go over because changing, turning speech into text is not always trivial, but I think I did a fair job. Sure. So I now have- You want to make sure that you're you're not uh, altering things in your favor. Yes, correct. Uh, so so I, that that's one of my chapter drafts is, is, is that text. Oh, that's great. That's great. Yeah, if you, again, there's a link on the webpage on the top level of my, of my website, which is not particularly prominent to the project for creating book chapters. And there's also a link to a different project, which I haven't worked on for the last year or two, but it might go back to, which is a project for a collection of works of literature which teach interesting economic lessons. So my probably favorite example for that would be a short story by Poole Anderson called Margin of Profit. And the point of the story is that in order to stop somebody from doing something, you don't have to make it impossible, just unprofitable. And it's quite explicit that that's what's going on. And in fact, the title is Margin of Profit. And it's a, it's a very good story, as Poole Anderson's things usually are. Basically, it's a science fiction context where there is a unpleasant empire that is seizing trading ships, spaceships, uh, and brainwashing their crew in order to increase its navy, in effect, and stopping it costs more than it's worth, that the trading companies could have a, a war with it, and the trading companies are pretty wealthy and powerful, and they could probably win a war with this little empire, but the cost of doing that is higher than the profits to be made on the trade routes, so they're not going to do it. And they could arm their ships, but armed ships don't carry enough enough goods to, to pay for themselves, so they won't do that. And it turns out that the solution is to arm one ship in four. The <laughs> enemy warships have much larger crews than the trading ships. So three times out of four, the bad guys win. One time out of four, the, the, the good guys win. 
and the bad guys are on net losing people, not gaining people, because the crews are more than four times as large, and therefore not being stupid, they'll eventually stop. <laughs> and after that, maybe we can do business. Uh, it's really a very, it, it's a very good story, which makes that point. And there are other, other ones of which that's, of which that's also true, uh, quite a lot. In fact, I've got, you know, probably 20 or 30 or 40 stories, poems, and so forth. There's Kipling's Arithmetic on the Frontier, which is basically about the, uh, U.S.-Afghan war, except that it was written a century or so earlier, uh, <laughs> One sword not stolen from the camp will pay for all the school expenses of any Hurham Valley scamp who knows no word of modes or tenses, but being blessed with perfect sight, picks off our messmates left and right. The captives of our bow and spear are cheap, alas, as we are dear. So it's a very neat point about the advantage that, prim that, that, that the undeveloped society has over the developed society, namely that it's got labor, which has got the relevant skills, namely fighting people, and is cheap. Did you ever assign these, uh, these stories when you, were, when you were teaching? Good question. I don't remember. I might have. <laughs> uh, I think I very occasionally referred to them in my... In fact, I know I refer... You definitely referred to some of these stories in... in... Well, hidden, I, hidden, I, or, hidden order. I refer to Niven's stuff on the downside of organ markets. Well, the down, not of organ markets, the downside of the idea that if somebody is executed for a capital crime, his organs forfeit. And that I have a, I have a published journal article on the inefficiency of efficient punishment where the point is that on the one hand, you would like to have criminal punishments where the loss to the criminal is a gain to somebody else, such as a fine, as opposed to imprisonment where the loss to the criminal is also a cost to the enforcers who've got to pay for the prison. But the, the downside of, of an efficient punishment is that it is then in somebody's interest to give it to you, whether or not it you deserve actually, it, yeah. Incentivizes maybe unjust punishments. Or even if not literally unjust, making punishments more and more severe. Sure. Uh, and in fact, that occurred to me. And then I came across Larry Niven stories, which are precisely on that point, because they're in the context of a the realization by people in a hypothetical future that if you're going to execute somebody anyway, there's no reason to throw away his organs. It's the perfect opportunity mm -hmm. to transplant them. And that seems like a fine idea. And so more and more countries make it. And then, of course, the number of capital crimes goes up because there's a shortage of organs. <laughs> uh, so it's it's the, the, the story. I think the first story in that series is one where at the end you realize that the person who's awaiting execution is his crime is having for three times driven in such a way as to endanger human life. <laughs> so three dangerous driving convictions and you're out. So that, that would be an example. And that one I do cite in my published work. No particular social media presence you want me to include? No, only the fact that my web page has a page of my talks and interviews and it isn't organized by date so it's not obvious which are the new ones but if you look down it and it also has the links to the very old ones that are now webbed uh, such as the one i was just listening to yesterday which i just put up yesterday as a link after discovering it
Uh, my guest today has been David Friedman. We've been talking about uh, anarcho-capitalism and a wide range of topics, but uh, his book that we initially started with is The Machinery of Freedom, Guide to a Radical Capitalism, which is currently in its third edition. David, thank you for joining me on Ideas Having Sex. And a PDF of which can be downloaded for free from my webpage. Thank you for listening to Ideas Having Sex, where we have stimulating conversations on social science, philosophy, history, politics, and more. If you're a fan of what I do, please take a minute to subscribe to the show and to give us a rating and review wherever you listen. I'm Chris Kaufman. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.